I'd like to turn your attention this morning uh, to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Sometimes a sermon like this really doesn't require a title. You're a Bible reader, and you know the passage of Scripture that we're at. I guess if we had to title the message this morning, we would simply title it with the question, Who's reigning now? Revelation 20, <clears throat> passage of Scripture that causes great difficulty to a lot of people. It's the only passage in Scripture that specifically mentions a thousand-year reign of Christ. It's the only passage in Scripture that specifically mentions the idea of a first and second resurrection. There are at least three schools of thought that surround the topic of the millennium, which is millennium is, uh, a milli is the Latin word for thousand. And that's where we get this term, the millennial reign. Someone may ask you, well, what's your position or what's your belief about the millennial reign? Are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, or all-millennial? Most of us, in considering this, are pan-millennialists. So what does that mean? It means in the end, it's all going to pan out. Um, aha. Anyways, uh, when it comes to the subject of the millennial reign of Christ, really when it comes to the subject of the book of Revelation, this is the most symbolic book in the Bible. It is the one with most imagery. It is the one with the most symbolism. What I think a lot of people do when it comes to the book of Revelation is they read through it and they attempt to go back through the remainder of the New Testament, and especially in the Old Testament, and overlay Revelation on that. I think that's an incorrect interpretation of this book. You've got 65 other books that precede this one. More than likely, what you need to do is have an understanding of the Old Testament and most of the New and bring it into the book of Revelation. My quandary with this is in the millennial school, and when the, in the idea, here's the ultimate idea, that one day Jesus Christ is going to come back, and he's going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem, headquartered in Palestine, and he's going to reign there for a thousand years, and there's going to be this complete earthly utopia. My question is, why are people constantly trying to make this place, this earth, a fit place to live? Jesus is in heaven. He already has an, uh, an, a utopia. Why put one down here? Well, some of these questions hopefully will be answered a little bit later. Um, I've got a printout here that I'm going to read some things through. I didn't bother to memorize all the ins and outs of premillennial, postmillennial, things like that. 
because of neither one of them. So I decided I'd just download some papers of people who are highly respected in their field. The man that I'll read from today, I have nothing against. I do not dislike him. I've listened to his program on and off for many years. Uh, I've gained some good insight on practical matters from some of the things that he has to say. Uh, even a blind hog finds an acorn once in a while, as they used to say. Uh, so I'm not here to ridicule him or put him down, but he is considered to be an educated man amongst his people, and I assume he knows what he's talking about on this subject. Get what I mean here. Uh, I'll not give you his name, but his initials are David Jeremiah. Um, in this concept and in this talk, to define the millennium is that for a thousand years, there will be peace. We will live in a perfect world with Christ our ruler. The millennium will be Christ's 1,000-year reign as king, following the tribulation. So in this case, then, you've got this concept of something called the tribulation. It's supposed to be a seven-year period of turmoil and chaos on this earth. And so this is where you get the term premillennialist and postmillennialist. It's either the millennium precedes the seven years or the seven years precedes the millennium. It's one or the other in these two camps. I'm neither. But I'd like for you to listen to this definition. Now, somebody may also ask, what's, what's so important about this? Um, it is true that when Christ comes back the second time, and he comes back to take his church to be wherever he is, whether I'm right or the church down the street right is irrelevant. God's people will be satisfied wherever they are. Because where they are, Christ will be. You get this? Now, it may be that he's going to come back and reign a thousand years, and I may be completely wrong on this. Or it may be that he's going to come back and just end everything. In, in our understanding of the Bible, we all want to be truthful. We want to be truthful to the text as the text is. When John wrote this revelation to the seven churches in Asia that are located there in the first three chapters, ask yourself this question. If John writes this book to the seven churches in Asia to encourage them in their time of chaos, what encouragement do you get from the concept of something that's going to happen way down the road from when you're living right now. Do you have any encouragement of this thousand-year reign that's going to happen somewhere down the road in your times of struggle right now? Help that comes to you a hundred years from now is not going to help you right now. Do you get the point? The millennium they say, will be Christ's 1,000-year reign as king following the tribulation. I'd like you to listen very carefully to this. David will be his vice president and will sit on the throne with him, and they will rule the world in righteousness and godliness. 
one of the purposes that they say for the uh, thousand-year reign or the coming of, of Christ in a thousand years is to fulfill certain Old Testament promises of God. Um, I'm not going to deal with everything that they intend, that they think God is going to deal with, but this one thing, to me, is the most important. God made a promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'd like for us to look at this and read through just this promise, and then we will uh, proceed on. We'll answer this question here in a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. Um, you remember what the definition was? David will be his vice president and will sit on the throne with him. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter tw uh, 7 and verse 12, God said to David, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's this promise that God makes to King David. That when thy days be fulfilled, and I sleep with thy fathers, I will raise up thy son after thee. So when David is dead and buried, God will raise up his seed after him. He will build him a house, and he will establish his kingdom. Now we say, well, maybe that was just Solomon. Solomon did sit on the throne of David. Solomon did build the house of God. However, Solomon's reign has not been forever. And the physical house that Solomon built for God was torn down and destroyed, was it not? So while there was a partial fulfillment or an immediate fulfillment to see, hey, here's someone who's going to sit on David's throne, Solomon, this has a greater fulfillment. And the, the secret is, it is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to sit on this throne, who's going to build the house of God, and this throne will be established forever. The question is, when does he begin to reign? That's the big question. Uh, we're not going to answer that right now. Um, the next thing, and you've often heard this about the millennium, is that the lion and the lamb will lie down together. Y'all have heard that. How many y'all have heard that time and time and time again through this thousand-year time of peacefulness? The lion will lay down with the lamb and there will be peace among all mankind and all hostilities that have been a part of our world will be gone. I have a question. Uh, the lion and the lamb are going to lay down together? We're all going to exist for a thousand years? What's everybody going to eat? Uh, lambs are carnivores. I mean, lions are carnivores, right? They eat lambs. Chickens are carnivores. They eat bugs and worms. What's everybody going to eat during this thousand-year period? It's just a question I have. I don't think it's a silly question because you've got this existence down here on this earth that people are not considering all parts of. Now, the question also comes about, 
will believers today that are on the earth be part of this millennium? And most people will say yes. At the moment of the rapture, every believer who is alive or deceased will be taken up into heaven and we will remain there for seven years while the tribulation is happening on earth. When Christ returns to defeat the armies of the world that have formed against him, we will return with him. Y'all all look puzzled. It already doesn't make much sense, does it? Keep in mind, though, at the moment of the rapture, so before this tribulation, this supposed seven-year period, the church, and I'm, I use the term church collectively, everybody got that Christ died for, that is a redeemed individual, is going to be removed from the earth. This is the theme behind that Left Behind series. Uh, this is the theme that one day you'll be flying in an airplane, and if the pilot is saved and you're not, he's going to disappear and you're going to be left in the plane, or you're going to be sitting in your office one day and people around you are just going to disappear and the world is just going to descend into chaos because half your loved ones are gone. The idea of a split rapture is not described by anybody else in the Bible. The idea of a first and second resurrection is not described anywhere else in the Bible except Revelation 20. And if Revelation 20 is symbolic in nature, this rapture is probably, or this, this going away is also probably symbolic. But let me, let me turn over here just for a second to, to uh, the writings of Paul. I'd like for you to notice in... Uh, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, considering this idea of a first and second resurrection that's laid out in Revelation 20, you need to see if the rest of Scripture teaches that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, everybody should know this, this is read at most every funeral that I know of. Verse 13, he says, But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. The term prevent in the King James Bible means to proceed or go before. Continuing on. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What is Paul described here? He has described the second coming of Christ. And he said there's going to be two things to happen. The graves are going to open, and the dead are going to rise. They will, that's the first thing that you're going to know about this. 
The clouds will part and the trumpet sounds and the graves are going to open. The dead shall come forth. And then Paul said, we which are alive and remain. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The term sleep here is an allegory for death. In God's eyes, the dead are just sleeping, and he can wake them with just his simple word. Paul says we shall not all sleep. In other words, there will be people who will be alive when Christ comes back the second time. When he comes back, the graves are going to be opened. The dead shall come out. And then it says, we shall be caught up together, this is verse 17, with them to meet the Lord in the clouds. Isn't that what it says? Does that say that the Lord's coming back to put his feet on this ground? It said at the same time that Christ comes back, the dead are going up. You catch it? So the idea that there's going to be some mystical rapture and all God's people are going to disappear from the earth, it, it doesn't fit this passage, does it? I'm going to give you another one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. What did Paul say again? When Christ comes back the second time, he is coming back at that time in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God. It doesn't say anything in this passage about him coming back to establish an earthly kingdom and rule in peace down here. He shall come back with his angels. He shall be glorified in his saints. And this should be a comforting thought. Paul did not speak of this so-called split rapture. He did not speak of a so-called second or first resurrection in the fact that the dead in the graves come out at two separate times. But in case you don't believe Paul, perhaps will you believe the words of Jesus? Because Jesus himself didn't even say this. John chapter 5. Excuse me. Uh, well, John 5 and... Well, we'll leave John 6 for later. But John chapter 5. Uh, we, we have turned to John chapter 5 over and over to teach the doctrine of regeneration. That it is by the spoken word of Christ, not by the word of the preacher, not by anything else, but the spoken word of Christ. And this is John 5, verse 25, that we get this from. 
the hour's coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. This we speak of as a doctrine of regeneration. That they that are dead in their sins, when they hear the voice of God, when he speaks directly to you, life is given to you by his voice. Some people are puzzled by this and they say, well, no, that can't be true. God has to use the preacher or God has to use a soul winner or you've got to take the gospel to somebody. You've got to bring them to church. They, they put everything in there that's not in this text. You see, you see what we're talking about? They, they try and bring everything possible into this text that's not in here. Well, Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, marvel not at this. Don't be surprised by this teaching that it takes the, the life-giving voice of the Son of God to give eternal life. He says, don't be puzzled by that. Let me give you another illustration. Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Now, whatever your understanding of this text is, it lays out here for you that when the evil come out, the good come out at the same time. When the good come out, the evil come out at the same time. There's no distance between the first half of verse 29 and the last half of verse 29. So the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, teaches that there shall be one resurrection of the just and the unjust at the same time. So already this concept doesn't make much sense. Doesn't make any sense to me. Question is also I'll ask, will there be death during the millennium? Just listen to this definition and see if it makes any sense to you. Because of the universe's pristine condition during the thousand-year reign of Christ, people will live for a long time. People living for a long time and people living forever are two different things. Catch it? It appears that lifespans will revert to those of the era before the flood, when humans lived to be more than 900 years old. Disease will be abolished. <clears throat> Crisis of death will be experienced only by those incorrigible individuals who rebel against the law of the kingdom. I thought that this was a perfect kingdom. And I thought that we read earlier that everybody that comes into this millennium will only be saved people. Everybody who goes into the millennium will be righteous. They all will be saved. But during that 1,000 year period, there will be marriages. Now hold on a minute. Hold on. I, I don't mean to make a mock of this. 
But this just gets to a point that it is so absurd. The only people who believe this have to be people who don't read their Bible. Jesus told those Pharisees one time, remember the Pharisees came to him and they said, ah, we have a puzzle here. Uh, there's a woman who had a husband and he died and they had no children. We actually kind of covered this a few weeks ago. And then his brother married her and he died and his brother married her. Seven brothers married this wife or married this woman and nobody bore her children. Whose wife is she going to be uh, in this other world resurrection that you think of? And Jesus said, you do err, not knowing the power of God nor the scriptures. For in heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Okay. Somebody says, well, that says in heaven. It also says that they are like unto the angels of God and they are like unto Christ. Everything I have ever read about this is that during this millennial period, the righteous that come back with Christ all come back in glorified bodies. So it can't be the righteous here that are marrying and bearing children. That don't fit with Scripture. Well, you see what happens is you get over there in Matthew 24 when Jesus has all nations gathered before him. He says unto them, you know, I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And they said, "When did y'all remember this text, right? He said, well, when did we do this to you? He said, in that you done it unto the least of one of these my brethren, you did it also unto me. So what that really means is, is during that seven-year tribulation, there are people who are going to be kind to the Jews. And based on their kindness to the Jews in the seven-year tribulation, they're going to be allowed to come into the millennium. And because of their faithful service, they'll be allowed to come into the millennium. They will bear children during the millennium, but their children will not be saved. Are you? Come on, are y'all with me? Are y'all asleep this morning? Confused is a term I know, yo-yo, right? Question. I thought that prior to the tribulation, all the faithful and the servants of God disappeared from the earth. I read that to you earlier. This is what a lot of these people believe. So where did these faithful during the tribulation come from? There ain't no preachers to preach to them, to get them saved. How does this fit? Where, where do these people come from? Secondly, the one who is in charge will know the intent of every heart. And there will be swift justice for every wrong. But friends, it's a, it's a perfect world. It's a perfect world reigned over by Jesus Christ. There can be no such thing as a perfect world if sin and rebellion exist at the same time. This is what John gets to in Revelation 21 when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be any sin. There's not going to be any rebellion. There's not going to be anybody to fight against Christ. 
So either this world ain't perfect that we're talking about here, this millennial kingdom ain't perfect, or there ain't no sin. But you can't have both of them. Um, the purpose for the millennium, we, we kind of discussed one of them earlier in answering prophecies or promises that God made to Israel and God made to Abraham in the past. And here's the other thing about a lot of this millennium stuff. It's not only grounded in making this earth a utopia, but it's also grounded in what God's going to do with the Jews. The church, the church during the first coming of Christ and his crucifixion and this supposed second coming of Christ doesn't mean anything. In the overall scope of this millennial concept, the church doesn't mean anything. It's sort of a band-aid that Christ put here because they wouldn't let him set up his kingdom the first time, but when he comes back the second time, he will set it up, and he just sort of set up this church as a band-aid or a bridge between the two to kind of just hold things together. I disagree with that. I disagree completely with that. Because Paul said to the church at Ephesus, he said that to, to God be glory in the church now and forever. The church was always God's design. The church that we have today, this gospel age, is not an accident. God didn't set this up because the Jewish people wouldn't let him have his way. And just think how ridiculous that statement itself is. God did something because somebody wouldn't let him have his way as he's a petulant child or something? No. As he's weak and defeated of some kind? No. Let's also consider this. When Christ came in the first century, a lot of the Jewish leaders had a problem with that, didn't they? Why? Why did the Jewish leaders in the first century, have a problem with Christ's coming. Because they misunderstood the Scriptures in the Old Testament that prophesied, on one hand, this mighty, this mighty roaring king, but on the other hand, like Isaiah, this man who is uh, whipped and beaten, this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, they could not harmonize those two. They didn't see how all this fit together but they did look for the fact he'd come riding on a white stallion and he'd deliver Jerusalem and deliver Israel from the Roman army. This was even the words of those men in Luke 24. We had trusted that it had been he that would have delivered Israel and redeemed Israel at this time from Roman rule. The biggest problem that they had at that time was looking at everything from an earthly and a physical Reality. It's got to be happening down here on the earth. And it's got to be physical. I got to see it. I got to be able to touch it. And people very seldom have the understanding that something can be literal and not physical at the same time. This pulpit. It's literal and it's physical. You can actually see it. You can touch it. Uh, what about the concept of love? Love is real, isn't it? But is it physical? Can you see it? 
you can see the outflow of it. You can see a husband loving his wife, a wife loving her husband, parents loving their children. Jesus said concerning the wind in John chapter in John chapter three, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh nor whither it goeth. The, the wind is is real, isn't it? Do you see the wind? But you see the effects of the wind, do you not? So go ahead and take John 3 as well. Don't ever forget this scripture. In John chapter 3, John told Nicodemus, he said, If I've told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? People will take their earthly understanding of things and not apply it to the Bible. Just completely throw it out the window. So when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus says, is that literal? Yes. Is it physical? No. You mean I've got to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus said, that's, that's not the born again I'm talking about. People running around nowadays talking, I was born this way. And Jesus says, yes, and you must be born again. Uh, get it? The birth is a borning again, is a birthing again. It's something that needs to happen to you, not from down here, but the Scripture tells you that that term born again means to be born from above. It is real. It is literal, but it's not physical. It's something that happens on the inside that nobody can see. But they see the effects of it. Um, they say we've got to answer another one of the promises of the Lord. And I, I felt this one was also secondarily important as well. It's in the, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, um, chapter 6. And it is concerning the Lord's Prayer. Um, everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, right? In Matthew chapter 6. Y'all know what it is, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Look at me. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? There's a few people in here who know what I just did. What does the Scripture say? The Scripture says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's that next word? In earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't say on earth. But I guarantee you, if you go down to the bookstore and you pick up any number of these new version translations, 99% of them are going to say on earth. You say, well, what's the difference between on earth or in earth? Well, this may be a matter of semantics, but I do think that this is important, and I'll show you why. The Apostle Paul wrote this to uh, the Corinth church. So if you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians. Paul spoke about the gift to preach the gospel. This gift to preach the gospel. He says in verse 1 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Did I tell you all that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry. So Paul says there's something we have. We have a ministry. 
we have a gift to preach. And you can actually back up to chapter 3 and read a lot of it. It kind of bleeds over into chapter 4. Uh, but I'd like you to just notice, for sake of argument, verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure. What's it say? In earthen vessels. I have a gift in me. It's not on me. It's in me. You say, well, what, what's the big deal here? I think there's a very big deal here. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray and taught you to pray, he taught you to pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You're an earthly creature. You are of the earth, earthy. You are created from the dust of the earth. And a lot of times it's far more important if God would fix the mess in here and not the mess in Washington. Have you ever heard somebody say, why don't they just fix what's wrong in Washington? Why don't they fix what's wrong in Montgomery? Why don't they fix what's wrong here? Why don't they fix what's wrong there? Hey, why don't you fix what's wrong inside you first? That's one of the big problems of this political machine that's going on in the world today. They want to take your car from you because you are not behaving right. Hey, if you want the earth to be saved, give up your car. You want the earth to save, turn off your air conditioner. You want the earth to be saved, stop using oil in your plastic shoes, in your plastic belts, in your microphones, and in your cables, in your computers, if you want the earth to be saved, you first, right? People aren't interested in fixing what's in here. They're interested in pointing the finger into what's out there. When Jesus said, pray ye, thy will be done in earth, the first thing I'm supposed to focus on is what is wrong with me. So this promise of Jesus establishing His kingdom in the earth has nothing to do with a physical palace in Palestine. It has everything to do with what's on the inside of the disciples of Christ. So, that doesn't, to me, it doesn't even need to fit. One of the things that they'll say is that the purpose for the millennial kingdom is to emphasize man's depravity and the necessity of Christ's death. Good gravy, friends. If you want to emphasize man's depravity, just turn on the TV. It emphasizes man's depravity every day. Christ doesn't have to come back and establish a kingdom on this earth to prove how depraved people are. This is where we were talking about earlier. Those faithful servants who survive the tribulation will bear children in whom the sin nature will reside. Even though Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth during the millennium, some will yet be deceived. And again, I ask, how is this possible if it's a perfect reign? Uh, the disciples themselves proves daily the depravity of man. It's interesting how people go over into this depravity of man when they start talking about things way out yonder, but they won't talk about it in reality right now. They get down here to this millennium and say, oh, men are depraved and it's going to prove their depravity. 
but they won't have anything to do with the true doctrine of depravity right here and now. Because see, the church doesn't matter. Get this? The disciples healed a man at a gate called Beautiful, a man that couldn't walk. Peter said unto him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The man got up, not only walked, he leaped and he praised God. And the statement was said of those leaders at that time, there in Acts chapter 4. Indeed, a notable miracle has been done and we cannot deny it. But so that they preach no more in Jesus' name, let us threaten them, let us charge them, let us beat them, let us harm them. That's all through, that's all through the New Testament. When they came to Jesus and they said, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly, Jesus said, I told you and ye believe not. Some of you were there. When I healed the man on the Sabbath day, did you believe then? No, you wanted to stone me to death. Some of you were there when I fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. Did you believe in me then? No. You just sought me for the loaves and fishes. You sought me for the miracles. You sought me for the horse and pony show. You sought me because you were hungry and I filled a spot in your empty gut. It didn't mean anything else to you. I told you and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, this is John 10, bear witness of me. But ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and none of them shall perish. It doesn't get any plainer than that. Jesus doesn't need a thousand year kingdom to prove man is depraved. He walked the earth for 33 and a half years, three of that in open public ministry, and they mocked him and scorned him then. How much more proof do we need that man is depraved? I don't care if you give him a million years. Jesus said in John 10, you believe not because you're not of my sheep. Elder Sonny Piles preached that wonderful sermon on cause and effect. That there is a first initial cause and there is an effect that comes from it. He says, ye believe not. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. Which tells us if you are of the sheep, you will believe. It's just that simple. The millennial reign that's looking for Christ to come back and set up his kingdom and rule poses lots of questions, lots more questions to me. Um, <clears throat> As we said earlier, if we had a title to this message, maybe we should just title it, well, who's reigning now? Who's reigning over this world right now? If, if Christ is not reigning, who is? Who's in charge? You? The devil? Notice with me in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 Again, we make reference to one of the miraculous uh, works of Christ where he cast out a devil out of someone. And those seeing this said, well, he just does this by the power of Beelzebub. 
Didn't change their thought about Christ, just made them mad. Really, that's what, anytime God works amongst the wicked on an external basis, outside of them, and just lets them see it, it doesn't change their heart, it just makes them mad. Notice what he says unto them. Verse 27, Matthew 12, verse 27. If I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Your children, these other Jewish people, these other apostles that walk here that are children of the Jewish nation, that are children of Israel. I've given them power to do this. You don't object to what they do, but you object to what I'm doing. By what power do they do this? Verse 28, listen. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. What, what does that text say to you in just plain black and white? Is the kingdom something we're looking for at an indeterminate time down the road? Or is the kingdom here now? Well, I got you there, preacher. Because Christ is reigning in His kingdom now and He's the perfect king. This world's a mess. You're wrong. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. Um, if you took a plane and you flew to Philippines, you flew to India or Africa or somewhere like that, you'd definitely not be at home, right? You'd be away from home. That plane at some point has got to come back to the United States. Maybe it's going to land up in San Francisco. Uh, if you landed in San Francisco or you landed in Los Angeles, would you say, I'm home? Huh? No? Are you not from North America? So you take that plane and you fly it, and it's probably going to land probably in Atlanta. Would you say you're home? Well, you're not from Atlanta. But you hop on that same plane, or perhaps the plane can't make it. You've got to rent a car. You get in the car, and you drive out I-20 uh, to Atlanta. Best thing to, ev best thing to ever come out of Atlanta, I-20. And you cross the state line. Would you say, I'm home? Don't know what to say now, do you? Are you not from Alabama? Can you not see that in your life there are various different stages of being at home in a place you belong to and that place is not considered all places? I live in North America. I could tell somebody I'm from North America and I'm completely right. I can tell somebody I'm from Alabama. I'm completely right. I can tell somebody I'm from the city of Birmingham. I'm completely right. I could tell somebody I'm from the town or province of Roebuck or whatever they want to call it in Birmingham. I could be at our Walmarts on Roebuck Parkway and say, well, I'm technically home, but I'm not at my house. You see how this evolved? You see how all this kind of works together here? The kingdom of God, what is it? It's wherever God reigns. Be it in heaven, be it in His church, or be it in your personal life. There are three stages right there that the kingdom of God applies to. They're not all the same thing. 
but yet one is contained in the other, which is contained in a broader concept of the other. So when, when they're looking then for this Christ to come back and reign, this is where we kind of want to take objection to this uh, and kind of go forward. Um, in Revelation 20, it talks about this angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be fulfilled. And after this, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So this reigning with Christ, when does it occur? Um, and secondly, or maybe more importantly, let's discuss real quickly this concept of a thousand years. Um, I fully recognize that the term thousand in this passage does not have the number one thousand in front of it. It just says a thousand. I don't know if that is a strong enough case to say that this is probably not a definite 1,000-year period. Because I know in other portions of, of Revelation, he talks about a time that's 1,203 score days. It doesn't say 1,000. He says 1,000. And you get from the context of it, it's 1,260 days. There's this time period here. There's this three-year time period, this 1,260 days, this 42 months, uh, this time, times, plural, and half a times, this three-and-a-half-year period is constantly described all through the book of Revelation. So I can readily admit that possibly it is 1,000 years. Question. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 11. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 11, Notice what Moses says concerning the nation of Israel. Well, let's just back up a little bit. and We'll just kind of read into it. Um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. And I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. The Lord your God hath multiplied you. And behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. He's talking about how the nation of Israel has grown here at the end of his ministry. God has multiplied you. Catch that? That was very simple, wasn't it? Verse 11. The Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as ye are. Huh? Is Moses praying that God would even bless them even a thousand times more? Is, God ask, is Moses asking God to bless them exactly 1,000 times more? Or is that sort of allegorical language like we use when we look at our kids and say, I've told you a thousand times, huh? and you still don't listen. Now, I'd be perfectly happy if the Lord God Almighty would just multiply my bank account times a thousand. I'd be ecstatic about that. Um, <clears throat> however, if I had nothing and he multiplied it times a thousand, I still got 
nothing in the end, and by the time I die, I'll have most of it left over at any rate. You see, we're, you see why we're asking this question. I don't think people ask enough questions. I don't think they ask the right questions. But someone says, well, that, that scripture is uh, it's, it's irrelevant. Might be. Doesn't prove your point enough. Might not. Let's turn to Psalms then. Psalm 52. Excuse me. Not Psalm 52. Where am I going here? Psalm 50. Psalm 50. If you found it, say amen. All right. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings, who have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. God here has just said he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's it? He only owns the cattle on a thousand hills? The thousand and one hill belongs to somebody else? Perhaps there's somebody else that owns the cattle on a thousand and two hills. Do you think this is an actual, literal thousand hills? Or is this, I mean, we're reading a book now to the boys called A Buzzard is My Best Friend. Edited for content for some children. Called A Buzzard is My Best Friend. It's a great book about a family that lived in Washington, D.C. in the suburbs. They moved to Virginia and they uh, bought a 112-acre farm. The husband said, this is not for me. And he goes back to work uh, in Washington every day and comes home. The wife and her two small children are left there to tend this 112-acre farm and all the joys of it with stubborn goats and dumb cows. She has 50 head of cattle on this 112-acre farm. And it is a hassle for her to manage the 50 head of cattle on a 112-acre farm and one bull. This is an annoying thing for her. This said our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Just exactly how disciplined do you have to be to own the cattle on a thousand hills? She has to take her car out into the pasture and count the cows every now and then to make sure she's got the right number that she needs to. And she says this is almost an impossible situation. People who have told her how to count cows said it is, it is almost impossible. I have to hire somebody to do it for me. Because what do they do? They move. They bump into each other. They roam around. And by the time you get through counting, you got one more. And then you got one less. And then you got the right number, but you're not sure if you counted the same cow twice. Can you imagine having to go out into the farm with this individual right here and help him count the cattle on a thousand hills? At what point during your counting of the cattle on a thousand hills would you realize, this is not for me? At what point would you also realize, man, how rich is this guy? At what point would you come to the understanding that this man owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that it is at the point everywhere I look, as far as the eye can see, belongs to him. So if Christ is going to reign for a thousand years, 
is it not reasonable that the reigning would not be 1,000 years, but it would be an indefinite period of time that as far as the eye could see, Christ has been reigning? Is it not reasonable to also realize that Peter said, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. This reigning is something that is just a continual thing with really no beginning and no end. Is it not reasonable for us to understand that as long as Christ has been reigning, every generation has had a Christ to call upon? From whenever he started reigning, every generation that has existed under the sun has had Christ to call upon. Unlike the reigning of men down here, that they reign and rule for four years, eight years, ten years. Sometimes in these communist countries they reign, they reign for 30, 40, 60 years, but their reign does come to an end. Whether they die in office are killed in office, or they step down in disgrace, whatever it is, their reign comes to an end, correct? So I think if we could find out when Christ began to reign, it might also help us to understand a little bit more about this book of Revelation. And what you're going to find, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. What you find when you read through this book is this book is not a record of chronological occurrences. Chapter 12 follows chapter 11 because 11 precedes 12. 13 follows 12 because that's how it is numerically. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. But the occurrences in each of these chapters do not follow necessarily concurrently. Even though by the time you get to like 19 and 20 and 21, John's kind of wrapping some things up here. 12, 13, 14, and 15 often tell the same story from a different perspective. And I don't think people get this quite right. This is not a chronological event as these things will happen up to the end. This is a record of what has occurred in human history down through the ages. So, for example, in chapter 12, we read about this great woman in heaven, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. That's kind of a interesting little description, isn't it? <clears throat> Is it a literal description? It's a real description. Is it physical? It's the nation of Israel. It's the nation of Israel with a crown of twelve stars on her head. Twelve what? What's, what do we know about Israel in twelve? Twelve tribes? And she's what? Verse two. Being with child, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Here comes the Messiah into the world. There waiting to hinder him is a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. What, do you think there was an actual large, huge, fire-breathing dragon ready to devour this child? Or is this political powers? Is this religious powers? Is this the wicked and unbelieving of the world ready to deliver the, the uh, ready to uh, harm the Christ child as soon as he was born? We know that Herod went and killed all the children two years of age and under when he heard about the coming of Christ. Who do you think this red dragon has reference to? 
Herod, the devil himself, obviously. What happens? Verse 5, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was called up unto God and to his throne. There's a lot of time span right there that's skipped in that verse, isn't it? Uh, here's another thing about this ruling with a rod of iron. This, this is very important. You need to remember this. This child was delivered. This child was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This child was called up unto God and to his throne. The moment he left, he went straight where? To his throne. I submit to you. Well, let me just read what the Bible says. That's Revelation 12, right? Please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Is quoted in Acts chapter 4, verse 25 through 28. The kings of the earth set themselves against, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Like you notice, verse 7. Uh, Lord speaking, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wait, we got a bunch of scriptures talking here now, don't we? Revelation 12 talked about this child who's supposed to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 talks about this person whom God said unto him, This day have I begotten thee. Somebody said, Yes. Point that Jesus Christ was conceived into this world. He became the Son of God. That's not what this text says. And I'll prove it to you. Acts 13. Acts 13. Remember, one of the main reasons that a lot of people promote this millennial thousand-year reign so that God will finally fulfill promises that He made. Are you with me in Acts 13? We've got a child. We've got somebody ruling with a rod of iron, dashing in pieces all nations. And we got someone begotten of God, right? I, I believe three, those three characteristics were from the scriptures I read to you, correct? I didn't misrepresent anything, did I? I don't, I don't want to misrepresent anything. Acts 13, verse 28. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promises 
which were made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. In that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten you. God begetting Christ had nothing to do with his virgin birth. It was his resurrection. Verse 35. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his father's and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Because David's purpose came to an end. But there will never come an end to the purpose of Jesus Christ. He quoted here that David said, after that he saw no corruption. Peter requotes that again in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we quoted first thing this morning, wherein they say that uh, Christ will be raised on his throne and David will be his vice president and reign with him. I read that to you very first thing when we started this sermon. Remember that? Listen to what the Bible has to say. Acts chapter 2. You really can start with verse 25. Because we're reading the same thing. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake, of the resurrection of Christ. What's happened here? All of these things that people are looking for in some mystical thousand-year reign, they completely miss in the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that they expect Him to do then the Bible through these scriptures I've showed you attribute to Him right now. If He is not reigning in this world, who is? Oh, well, I see destruction and I see misery and I see chaos. How can He be reigning? Because the Bible said that He bound Satan with a great chain. <clears throat> Does the term bound mean complete immobility? I know that we picture somebody taking a chain and wrapping it all the way around somebody, tying them up and throwing them in the corner. But don't y'all remember in the book of Acts that Paul said, I go bound in the Spirit unto, unto Rome, knowing the things that befall me there? What did he mean? He meant I went bound, but I also went limited. The term bound can be hindered or limited. A dog on a chain is limited. He is limited to the circle to which that chain allows him to move and operate. 
When the devil came before the Lord in the book of Job and said, and the Lord said, where hast thou been? He said, from going to and fro in all the earth. And the Lord said, hast thou considered my servant Job? I didn't really need that at the time, but okay. Have you considered my servant Job? And he said, the only reason he serves you is because you've blessed him so much. Take away all that he has and it hurts you to your face. And God said, well, go ahead. But don't touch his life. He allowed him to take everything he had physical. And then he allowed the devil to take all his health away from him. But did you notice that the Lord said to the devil, touch not his life. So I would say in that case, he was bound. He was limited. He was hindered as to his effect and influence he could have on Job. How about you? If you think the devil is not bound now, you wait till he is turned loose. If the devil was not bound now, every church in America would be closed. They're burning them down in Canada right now. This COVID thing has really gotten out of hand. They are going and they are hunting people down now in the, in the nation of Canada and burning their churches because they refuse to not meet. They continue to meet in the name of the Lord. They continue to do. See, freedom, freedom doesn't mean that you do what you want. Freedom is the freedom to do what you ought to do. And what we ought to do is worship the Lord. So when the angel came down and bound the devil, that does not mean that they wrapped him in a chain and thrown him in a room. It is completely reasonable that they just hindered and limited his influence in this world. Because I know he's alive and well because I see it on the TV whenever I turn it on. I hear it on the radio and a lot of times it even fills my Facebook page. It's rather more plausible to say that when Christ ascended back to heaven, He sat down at the right hand of His Father, as the Bible says, expecting until His enemies become His footstool. But if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, we'll close by reading this last verse. And I just appreciate so much your kind patience and your quiet attention. Revelation chapter 1. If somebody is expecting the time of tribulation to come, and they are expecting the kingdom of Christ to one day come, please explain this verse to me then. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in... What's that next word? What did Jesus say in John 14? Did He say, in this world you're going to have difficult times? Or did Jesus say, in this world, ye shall have tribulation? John said, I am your brother and companion in tribulation and in what? The kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Sound like John was having some tribulation then. Sound like John was in the midst of the kingdom of Christ then. This book is not written to comfort people a million years from now. This book is written to comfort people right now. This book was written to comfort those seven churches in Asia right then. 
This book is written to comfort you and us, you and me, right now. We have tribulation in this life. We have difficulties in this life. But friends, if, if Christ wasn't ruling in our life right now, if He wasn't active in our life right now, how bad would your life be? Those of you that have lost siblings, those of you that have lost children, those of you that have lost loved ones around you, how is it that you have dealt with the loss of those people? Sheer human strength? No. No. There's a power far greater than sheer human strength ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who have experienced some of the greatest sorrow ever. Why? Because Christ is on His throne now. And because He rules and He reigns and because He lives, we shall live also. Thank you this morning for your good kind of patience.